Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee. This August 2017 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation focusing on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, what we eat, when we eat. Our guest presenter is Dr. James Esteban, Senior Fellow, Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here now is Dr. James Esteban. Thank you everyone for coming. You know, it's really an honor and a pleasure for me to be here to talk to everyone about a topic that I feel strongly about, a topic I actually like. I had the pleasure and the honor and the opportunity to conduct a research on fatty liver and for that research to be recognized nationally in a sense by other investigators. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm very happy to share some of what I did, what I found out with you guys and try to put that in context in terms of, you know, applying the findings to day-to-day -day life. All right. So when we talk about liver disease worldwide and in this country, um, generally the more, more common causes that we think about are obviously alcohol, heavy alcohol use, that's really classically what everyone equates liver disease to, and also viral hepatitis, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. But in the background, that's actually becoming more common now as a cause of chronic liver disease is what's known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. With heavy alcohol use, um, the liver and eventually ends up accumulating fat, getting inflamed, and then getting scarred. That's essentially what happens. But in some patients, alcohol intake isn't necessary. They don't drink or they barely drink. And yet at the same time, their liver gets studded with fat, it gets inflamed, and it gets scarred pretty much the same way that patients with alcoholic liver disease do. And so this is what's known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So what causes non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or we call it NAFLD for short, the fact that there's the word fat in the name implies that the most important cause is obesity. The other medical issues or diseases or illnesses, what have you, that come with obesity also influence NAFLD. For example, diabetes. Diabetics are at very high risk of getting NAFLD. Patients with dyslipidemia, or you know, the bad cholesterol is high, the good cholesterol is low, these patients are also at increased risk. Sleep apnea in particular. These are all risk factors that have been proven to lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. What kind of piqued my interest really is to, you know, are there other risk factors that contribute or lead to the development of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that's really the background from where I started my research topic and my research question. I think before I go on to, to my study, the other thing I'd like to point out is, you know, right now, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is actually becoming rather common. And with the current trajectory, we're actually seeing it as replacing 
hepatitis and replacing alcohol as the most common cause of cirrhosis and chronic liver disease and transplant by 2020. We're getting there, or maybe even you know, shortly after that. And so this is something that we have to address. To be honest, there's not so much treatment for a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The whole idea with treating NAFLD is to prevent or treat the risk factors that caused it to happen to begin with. So in other words, treatment will be to lose weight, to treat the diabetes, to treat the blood cholesterol, to treat the sleep apnea, and all of that. That's really the best way of treating it. If we're unfortunate that we don't you know, stop it at the beginning and it becomes cirrhosis or the liver starts scarring down, then the treatment is even more limited. And at that point, we're kind of left with transplantation, you know, if you're a good candidate for a transplant. And so from that background, I wanted to look at risk factors, other risk factors other than the ones that we already know about. Because, you know, there are medicines in the pipeline that they're working on, but I think this is a disease that instead of treating it with medicines, it's probably something that's best dealt with, with prevention and trying to understand better what risk factors cause it to begin with. And so in that background, I came up with my question for my research. You know, initially I talked about obesity as being probably the most important contributing factor to NAFLD. And when we think of potential causes for obesity, we think of, well, the amount of calories that we eat. You know, obviously if we eat more, then the bigger we get. If we don't exercise, then the bigger we get. I thought of kind of looking at the calories from a different perspective. I tried to think about, well, you know, there are patients who try to, you know, they limit the amount they eat, and yet they still can't lose weight. You know, they still remain obese despite, you know, being on a strict diet. And so I thought about looking at other patterns of food intake that might influence fatty liver and that might influence obesity. And that's where I came up with the idea of, well, why don't we look at timing? Why don't we look at when people eat, when people don't eat, how often people eat in a day, and try to look at those patterns and those questions and see, well, is that potentially associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? And so, Going back in time, back in 1988 to 1994, actually even until now, the U.S. Department of Health conducts a huge, huge survey of Americans all over the country. And they disperse these mobile units and spread it all over the country. They take residents, um, examine them, get blood drawn, ask questions, do physical exams and whatnot, and they do this every year. So going back to 1988 to 1994, they also took 14,000 people and they got ultrasounds of their liver. And back then, they didn't know what to do about it. So it was just stored in like these cassette tapes. In 2009, a group of people got all the cassette tapes and reviewed them to try and see, well, who has fatty liver? And they did that in these same 14,000 people. So we have information on the ultrasounds of these 14,000 people who has no fatty liver, who has mild fatty liver, and who has bad fatty liver. So I have that piece of information, which is great. 
The other thing that this survey, and it's called Enhanced, by the way, the other interesting thing about this survey is they also gave residents a 24-hour period, and they asked them meticulously, what did you eat? What time did you eat? How many calories? How many proteins? How many whatever? All the nutritional intake. And that's actually, for me, rather interesting, comprehensive information. And so from there, what I ended up doing was I divided the day into four different intervals, which I thought would be corresponding to when we normally eat. So I did four in the morning to 10 in the morning. I'd say that's breakfast. 10 in the morning to 4 p.m., I'd say, okay, that's lunch. 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., I'd say that's dinner. And then 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., because normally we should be sleeping, but some people do late night meals. So I did that too. And then what I did was I figured out who was eating at this interval and who weren't. So, you know, like breakfast skippers, lunch skippers, dinner skippers, and who were eating late at night. So late night eaters, I looked at that. The other thing I looked at was, well, how many times do they eat in a day? Because the survey kind of covers the entire population. There, of course, there are people who don't, unfortunately, eat at all. And then there are people who eat so many times during the day. And, you know, what I looked at next is, are these patterns related to the presence of fatty liver? I also looked at, are these patterns related to other factors that influence fatty liver? For example, are these patterns related to obesity? Are these patterns related to high blood cholesterol, to diabetes, and so on and so forth? You know, of course, I did a bunch of statistical tests that you know, I won't belabor what I did. But in terms of percentages, in terms of increased likelihood of having fatty liver, eating more meals during the day, and this is assuming that the calories are the same. So assuming caloric intake is the same throughout the day, eating more actually decreased the likelihood of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease by 10% for every additional meal. For example, if you have a person who ate maybe three times a day versus one who ate the same calorie six times a day, but just kind of distributed it out throughout the day, that person who ate more will be a 30% lower likelihood or lower odds or probability of having fatty liver disease. The other thing I found out was that skipping the midday meal, which is to say skipping lunch, there weren't a lot of people. Out of all these thousands and thousands of people, probably only 4 or 5% do skip lunch. But these people who do skip lunch were 80% more likely to have fatty liver on their ultrasounds. So I found that rather interesting. Now, how about the others? Skipping breakfast, not quite. It didn't have the same effect. Skipping dinner didn't have the same effect. Late night meals didn't have the same effect. So for some reason, it's the meal in the middle of the day, skipping that meal in the middle of the day, increased the likelihood of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So basically, that's what I found. And, I, you know, it seems like, you know, basically I only have two main findings. Skipping lunch is bad. Eating more meals throughout the day. You control the calories, but you're eating more frequently. is protective. And, you know, when you look at that, it's just like two rather simple results, but at the same time, I find that intriguing because all of us eat, and all of us eat at a certain time, and I think controlling, in a sense, when we eat and how much we eat, how frequently we eat, are things that we can work on. These are what we call modifiable risk factors, and I think, you know, in any kind of chronic disease, it's not just 
fatty liver disease. We're talking about all sorts of things, diabetes, heart disease, and whatnot. We always have to think about these modifiable risk factors because these are things that we have control about. Our gender, we don't have control over that. Our you know, ethnicity and our racial heritage, we don't have control over that. But there are certain factors that we do, and I think these are things that are important to look into. So when I presented my research to the bigger audience of scientists, and because I presented this research in our national meeting in Boston last year, it was very intimidating, to be honest. It was a room of like a thousand people from all over the world who are really good at what they do, this is what they do. There was interest generated because, again, I think it's a simple thing that we can do something about. But at the same time, during that same conference, and I'll be saying the same thing here, I think with any new research that we come across, we always need to ask ourselves as well, just how much can we apply this research to our life? One thing I would caution, I mean, you know, I've always received questions for the risk of NAFLD to go down. So do you recommend that we make sure we don't skip lunch and we, you know, try to spread out our meals? I mean, from my end, these are easy things to do. There's nothing that we're going to, we're not going to lose anything by doing these things. Yeah? In your factory groups, did you track whether they were eating processed food or fresh food? The, the analysis did not. In my analysis, I did not factor that in. But if you go back to the survey and look at the data real well, you can actually track it. That's a good question. I also like to point out these findings, I would say they're associations. It doesn't mean that what I found is truth. It doesn't mean that, not yet. These are associations. And that's something that I'd really like to point out about the findings of my study. You know, I mean, these are all exciting, nice findings. But I'd like to caution everyone, too, that what I found out were just associations. I can't really say with 100% certainty and guarantee that the skipping of the meals or not eating enough or be having infrequent meals, that that's the causative factor. All right, now going back, mechanisms. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't know. Uh, we don't know. There are hypotheses, and I'd like to share some of these with you guys. The first hypothesis is that, well, you know, our body has a concept of circadian rhythms, which means to say that there's a rhythm in the physiologic processes in our body. For example, during the daytime, there's a certain set of mechanisms and pathways and what have you that's supposed to be more active because that's when we're awake. But when we're sleeping, there's a completely different set of active pathways. And these go in a rhythm, you know, go with a day and night cycle. Now, the liver has a similar mechanism. And I guess to simplify how they thought about it is, well, during the daytime, we're supposed to be, you know, humans, we are supposed to be active during the daytime and not during the nighttime. And so during the daytime, our body is built to process stuff, to burn through stuff. And at nighttime, what ends up happening is it's the opposite. Our body starts building things, builds muscle fat and whatnot. Now, one of the thoughts is that food influences the rhythm. If we eat when we're supposed to eat, then the rhythm stays in pace. If we skip meals, then the body loses that pattern and the rhythm shifts. Such that now during the daytime, if we keep on missing the daytime meals and this whole rhythm shifts, then what ends up happening is the liver, instead of breaking down things, ends up accumulating things, and that includes fat. So that's one hypothesis. 
The other hypothesis is that disruptions in this circadian pattern alters the biologic or microbial composition of our guts. And this whole microbial composition of the gut is a very hot topic everywhere. I don't know if you've heard about how you know, a dysfunctional population of bacteria in our gut promotes disease, including liver disease, including Alzheimer's, they're saying, Parkinson's and all of that. But let's focus on fatty liver disease. And there's research out there saying that if this gut bacteria is dysfunctional, it's not the healthy bacteria, then it increases the risk of fatty liver. It makes sense in a way because blood that's directly coming from the gut before it goes to the rest of the body, it goes to the liver first, always. That's just how we're built. And so if there's a problem with the bacterial composition of the colon, what ends up happening is all the blood going to the liver is full of bacterial byproducts that promote inflammation, that promote fat accumulation, and all of that. And there are studies suggesting that alterations or disruptions in the circadian rhythm, whether or not you know, this is on people who do shift work, for example, who instead of sleeping at night, they work. Or people who, in this case, skip meals during the daytime and perhaps eat during the night, effectively reversing their circadian rhythm. There are studies saying that in these people, the microbial composition is altered. So that's hypothesis number two. Hypothesis number three, and this applies more to the frequency of meals. Every time we eat, our body is flooded with glucose, with nutrients from what we eat. And so after each meal, the glucose level of the body shoots up, and as a response, the pancreas secretes insulin to bring that level down. Now, insulin does many things. One of them is bringing the blood sugar down. But I think the other important role of insulin is that insulin actually promotes fat to accumulate in the body, in the liver, and whatnot. Now, if we eat infrequently during the day, then we get these sudden bursts of blood sugar. And with each burst of the blood sugar, it's followed by a burst of insulin. On the other hand, if we divide the calories into more meals, assuming that you're not overeating with each meal, then you have fewer, smaller rises in glucose. And so overall, the rise in insulin, instead of big peaks, is a more slow, gradual slope, which could explain why people who were eating more frequently had less fat in their liver. Now, in relation to the lunch or midday skipping, so let's put it this way. If I eat breakfast, I get my insulin surge, right? And then I don't eat lunch, and my sugar throughout the day keeps on dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping such that by dinner time, if I do decide to eat, by dinner time, my blood sugar is rather low, I'm feeling hungry, I would eat more, and so my blood sugar would suddenly surge very high, and what follows is a high insulin surge. The problem is, that's nighttime, and what will I do after I eat? I will sleep. And then that gives insulin all that time to create obesity and to create fat in the liver. So I think these are three possible mechanisms. Now, which one is true? I don't think we know yet. These are all possibilities right now. Any thoughts? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Was it 14,000 or 40,000? 14, yeah. So 14,000 had the ultrasounds. 
But of course, I have to exclude other people. For example, we're talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I got to exclude everyone who says, oh, I drink a lot. They get removed. Sometimes people are on medicines that cause fatty liver. So those get excluded too. People who have hepatitis B and C, those get excluded too. At the same time, if I'm going to do a study, I want everyone to have all the information I need. But of course, in the real world, you know, you don't always get a completely answered survey. And so I got to exclude the people with incomplete data. So after all these exclusions, I ended up with about 9,000. It's not 14,000, but it's still 9,000. So it's still, you know, it's still a big number of people. And every time we do any sort of analyses, the numbers are always very important. Getting consistent data from 1,000 is always better than consistent data from 10. Yes, that's a, that's a really good point. It's hard to get complete data on nutritional intake. 24-hour dietary recall gives you a full set of data, but only for 24 hours. That is a weakness. I would say that's a limitation of the study because how they ate 24 hours before is not necessarily how they eat for three months, six months, or a year, which is what matters. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a chronic condition. It's not going to come up with a one-day change in our behavior. This is something that has to keep on going and going and going and going. Yes? It's mostly a disease of adulthood, but fatty liver disease has actually been described increasingly in kids and adolescents, particularly in kids and adolescents who are growing up obese. And you know, cirrhosis, which is the end stage of liver disease when the liver turns to scar, we usually think of that as a disease of older people. It's a disease that people get in their 50s, but it's also a disease that depends on how long you have it or how long you have the inflammation. And so, you know, increasingly, kids who grow up obese and who grow up with fatty liver, you know, we have seen cirrhosis in adults as young as 20, needing transplants in their 30s. That's very young. Very young. Yeah. Um, how do you identify these patients with fatty liver disease? I mean, do you encourage testing to be done? The most common way we catch non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is when your primary care doctor gets you know, your routine blood work for the year and sees that your liver numbers are a little bit higher than usual. And so you get tested for the usual stuff. You get asked about your alcoholic intake, and then you get an ultrasound of your liver, and then it shows fatty liver. This is the most common way we catch this. But I guess going to your question, how about people without abnormal liver tests? When do we check? Because most of these people will have elevated liver tests, but a normal liver test will not exclude fatty liver disease. You can still have it even if your liver tests are normal. That's why some professional societies are actually recommending getting an ultrasound for patients who are at increased risk. So now we start talking about, well, what are these risk factors that highly predict fatty liver disease? And so these are patients who have multiple risk factors that include obesity, diabetes, high blood cholesterol, sleep apnea, Essentially, a combination of these four, you could argue that part of the annual screening should be an ultrasound as well. 
now there's more into that debate because, of course, with every test, I mean, you got to think about costs. You got to think about, well, what do I do with the result? So I do this test, it shows fatty liver. Now what? What do I do? Well, of course, that should strengthen your resolve to change your lifestyle, lose weight, get the diabetes under control, and all of that, sure. But do we need to do something further? Do we need a liver biopsy? Do we need to do more testing? And I think that's part of the debate as well for these people who are doing well, who have normal liver tests, but incidentally, we're just found to have fatty liver. So right now, if you're asymptomatic and your blood work is normal, there's no consensus as to whether or not we should get an ultrasound to look if you have fatty liver. Yes? Did they consider NSAIDs to be in the category of medications that were causing liver disease back in the 90s? So the decision regarding which medications cause liver disease was actually my judgment. I made my own list of meds that are known to cause fatty liver, and I looked into intake of these meds and I excluded them. NSAIDs, I did not include Let's put it this way. If you're using NSAIDs, you do not get excluded. You stay in the study group. It's a drug class that includes ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, Aleve, Naproxen. So these are anti-inflammatory agents. Classically, we don't think of these as risk factors for fatty liver disease. However, there's actually growing data showing that it does cause liver injury. But we're talking about more acute liver injury, like liver inflammation and all of that. So in general... In terms of skipping meals, skipping the midday meal was more common among non-Hispanic blacks and Mexican-Americans. Eating infrequently during the day is also more common among the non-Hispanic blacks and the Mexicans. And then if we look at other social demographic factors, age increases the likelihood of fatty liver. The older you get, the higher likelihood. In terms of race, Hispanics, Mexican-Americans, are actually at increased risk. And this has been proven many, many, many times, not just this study. But Mexican-Americans are at increased risk for fatty liver disease. And one of the factors is because of a genetic mutation that's more common in Hispanics. And then I also looked at geography, U.S. region, northeast, south, west, and midwest. That actually did not factor in. And then another thing that factored in is physical inactivity. People who are more sedentary have a higher risk. Another thing that factored in is college education. Non-college educated are at increased risk of NAFLD. Another thing that factored in was income. The closer individuals were to the poverty line, the higher the risk. So um, males are more likely to get non-alcoholic fat liver disease. The issue sometimes with these studies are, you know, you have all these many, 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 many factors that can cause one single outcome, and it becomes harder to interpret. When we do statistics, sometimes we control for some of these variables, and, you know, I did control for, you know, age, sex, ethnicity, income, uh, physical activity, smoking, alcohol, and all of that. And even after controlling, the midday skippers and then the infrequent eaters still show the higher association, if you may. I think the findings, even if it's not definitive, I should say, I think raised questions all over. Does food timing and food frequency actually matter? Will someone do an animal study now and just make one group skip lunch? There, there are several laboratories doing animal studies. One of the biggest circadian labs is in Northwestern in Chicago. 
think Dr. Evans in Marquette also, she has a circadian lab too, but they have been doing animal studies on this. And so far, what it's been showing actually is, you know, again, animals who have disrupted circadian rhythms are more prone to develop fatty liver as well. They just haven't figured out exactly why. Something interesting I'd like to share though is they have done prospective controlled trials. They've done trials on food timing with regards to weight loss and diet among obese patients. And what they found was similar to what I found, those who skipped lunch or ate infrequently also lost fewer pounds compared to the other group. And I found that interesting because weight loss, obesity, and diabetes are all interconnected with fatty liver. We have this entity called metabolic syndrome. It's a combination of high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and high blood cholesterol. And non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is really thought of as the liver part of that syndrome. And so, I mean, certainly they share risk factors. And I think it's supportive of my study that that trial showed that they lost fewer pounds or less weight than the other group. All right, well, thank you all for being very participative. I really like having these conversations. It's very inspiring. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe, brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and recorded live at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of people worldwide. And be sure to also check out our CTSI Discovery Radio podcast series as well. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.